Well, good morning, Salem. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah, specifically Nehemiah chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. In just a few moments, we're going to read about a milestone victory for the Jews here in Jerusalem. Before we get there, however, what I want for us to do is to go back and be reminded of what's taken place in the book of Nehemiah so far. So we, we think about chapter 1, where Nehemiah is serving as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He's living in Susa, the citadel, and his position is one of authority. It is one of prestige. Nehemiah is living a cushioned life. There's no other way to say it. He's got everything that he's ever going to need. He's got no shortage of food. He, in fact, he gets to eat the very same thing that the king eats every single day. He has a comfortable place to sleep. He's got a job that many people would die to have. However, Nehemiah is visited by his brother Hanani. And there's some other men that come with Hanani from the land of Judah. And these men tell Nehemiah about the great trouble and the shame that the city of Jerusalem is in because the walls are torn down and they've been burned. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, here's what he says. As soon as I heard these words, in other words, as soon as this word, as soon as they told me the news of what was going on, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, at this point, Nehemiah has no idea what God wants to do about the problem. All he knows is that God has given him a burden, and he is going to pray that something will be done. I don't think Nehemiah even knew that God was going to do a great work through him. I think he simply saw a need, and he started pouring out his heart before God for that need. And really, when we were talking about this several weeks ago, that brought us to the question of, what is it that breaks my heart? And is what breaks my heart the same thing that breaks the heart of God? When a burden for what breaks the heart of God enters into our lives, what are we going to do about it? So we see a need somewhere around us. What, what are, how are we going to respond? Are we just going to kind of observe it and look on it and think about how sad that is and then just ignore it? Or are we going to commit to praying in brokenness on behalf of whatever it is that is wrong? God, would you do something about what's taking place here? Nehemiah is broken for the city of Jerusalem. We know that he spends a couple of months praying and, and asking God to do something. And then one day, he's given the opportunity to act on the burden that God has placed on him. That's where we get to chapter 2, and we see the Persian king, Artaxerxes, ask Nehemiah. He says, what's wrong, Nehemiah? What's going on with you? Why is your heart sad? Why is your face sad? Why are you coming into our presence like this? You're not supposed to do that, right? Well, Nehemiah has the opportunity then to kind of present to the king what's on his heart. And he kind of lays it out there and says, all right, God, here we go. I'm going to lay this out here before the king. And we know that within a very short time, Nehemiah finds his way on his way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to go do something about the burden. And, and, and he's not just on his way, but he's also carrying letters from the king. And these letters are giving him authority and giving him resources to do everything that needs to be done with the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. Folks, never ever forget that when God places a burden on our hearts, that he is going to provide to see that burden through, to see something done about that burden. What God calls us to, he will make provision for. What God calls us to, he will make provision for. 
Sometimes we stop short of, of following through with the burden because we don't have the faith that God can actually do the impossible. However, if Nehemiah had stopped praying and if Nehemiah had not taken action when he was given the opportunity, then he never would have gotten to the point where we're at right here in Nehemiah chapter 6, where now they're finishing this job that they have started. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we see Nehemiah arrive in Jerusalem. He goes by night to inspect the walls. He tells nobody what's on his heart. In fact, nobody knows what's going on at all. Why is Nehemiah even here? They're probably wondering. But it's only after inspecting those walls and seeing them for himself that he goes to the people and he presents two things. He presents the problem and he presents the solution to the problem. The problem is that the walls are torn down. Jerusalem is defenseless. God is not being honored by these walls being torn down. That's the problem. The solution is that Nehemiah is going to unite the people together to do a great work over the next 52 days to complete the rebuilding of the walls. In chapter 3, we see the people who are involved, and there's a whole list there of, of the families that are involved. And when you really look at that list, you realize that's not a huge group of people. And, and they're certainly not builders, because you've got goldsmiths, you've got perfumers, you've got religious leaders that are involved in doing this. This is a reminder for us that it doesn't take much to be used by God. We don't have to be skilled in whatever area it is that we're working in order to be used by God because God specializes in taking the weak and making it strong. He specializes in taking us where there's nothing and providing something. In fact, God tends to do the most work in people who have the least amount of skill to bring to the table. Now, you might think that you've got nothing in this world to offer God. You may think that you've got nothing to offer other people, or you may think you have nothing to offer even the church. But the reality is you're exactly the type of person that God is looking to use. There's two great truths that we find in Nehemiah, yeah, Nehemiah chapter 3. Number one is that God uses the person that no one else would think is important. God uses the person that nobody else would think is important. But then the second great truth that we see in Nehemiah chapter 3 teaches us that there is no end to the impact that can be made when God's people join together with a common purpose of bringing glory to God and obeying Him and what He has called them to do. These people were united with a common purpose. They were rebuilding this wall for the good of man and for the glory of God. Then we then get into chapter 4 of Nehemiah, and, and right away we see opposition to the work. They start building, and just like that, the, uh, the opposition starts to come up. There's some people here who don't want Nehemiah and the Jews to succeed. And in fact, they're going to do everything that they can to stop the work because they know that if they build this wall, there is money at stake, and they're going to be hurting because of it. They know that there's power and there's prestige at stake here in Nehemiah's success. Nehemiah's success is sure to harm other people, and they don't like it. Throughout chapter 4, we see Nehemiah repeatedly deal with the opposition that comes up. And every single time, we see him take that opposition to God and say, God, here it is. And then he just returns to his work. You move on to chapter 5, and there's people who are working, who are being oppressed by other Jews. Jews are oppressing other Jews. These prestigious Jews are breaking God's law in the way they're dealing with their brothers. And Nehemiah becomes an advocate for the poor and the oppressed, and he stands up and says, enough. No more of this. We see God at work again, and we see these, all of these people humble themselves. The ones who are doing wrong humble themselves. The people are unified, and they're able to continue working. At the end of chapter 5, we see Nehemiah's generosity. 
He doesn't take advantage of other people, even though it would be socially acceptable for him to do so. He makes the decision to be generous with his resources. And then we get to chapter 6, where we're going to pick up here in just a few moments. And the first part of chapter 6 is where we were at last week. We talked about the distractions that come up to the work that, that God has called these people to do. Things that pull our attention away from what God has called us to do. We see that in the first part of chapter 6 that Nehemiah deals with the distractions, but then he, he moves on quickly from them. He doesn't allow those distractions to bring him down or to take his attention away from God's calling on his life. You know, oftentimes distractions pull our attention away from what God has called us to do. We, we choose the good things over the great things. We choose the good things over the God things. And now today we arrive at the end of chapter 6 where we see the wall completed. The job is done. Let's start reading here in Nehemiah chapter 6. And then we'll start reading in verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly to the, in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, And his son Jehoanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Beginning part of chapter 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor uh, of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. For I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Now, in the next few moments as we're together, I want to focus on the true center of the story. You say, well, what is that? We've got Nehemiah, right? He, he's, he's a part of the story. You could argue that, that he is the center of the story, but I would argue differently. He is the author of this book. He is the, he's the, kind of the main character in some ways. But at its core, God is the one who is truly the main character. He's the one who's made all of this possible. He's the one who's orchestrated all of it from sending Hanani and the other men to Persia to see Nehemiah in the first place, all the way up to the end where the, where the, where the, the wall is built. God is the center of this story, and I think it's important for us as we, as we approach the end of, of talking about the, the wall in particular, we've got several more weeks in the book of Nehemiah, but as we look at the, the end of this, of this segment of the book, for us to devote our time to, to looking at God as the center of the story. And what I want to do is, is point out just a couple of things about God as we see him here in this story, Okay. The first thing is this, God specializes in making a big impression. God specializes in making a big impression. All throughout the Bible, 
God is making impression after impression on people. And, and there's a strong chance that because you are watching this video this morning and that you are joined us for this service, there's a strong chance that at some point in your life, God has made an impression on you. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it's the very first, first verse in the Bible. God makes an impression when he says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very first verse in the Bible, God is making impressions. He starts there in Genesis chapter 1, and then over and over and over again, all throughout the pages of history, God makes impressions on people. We read on and throughout the Bible, we see the impression that God made on people like Noah and Elijah and David and Ruth and Jesus' disciples. You got the Apostle Paul. You go on through, um, through church history, and you see so many people who have been impressed in some way by God. When God makes an impression on a person, they are driven to do extraordinary and, and supernatural things because of the impact that God has made on them. Nehemiah and these Jews in Jerusalem are no different. God made such an impression on them that it spurred them on to do great things for God. Now, a question that I would ask you here is, is, is this. What kind of impression has God and I'm talking the God of the universe here, the God that is the creator of all things. What kind of impression has God made on you? I truly believe that it's biblical, and it's safe to say that when God has made an impression on a person, they will attempt to do great things for God. When God has made an impression on a person, they will attempt to do great things for God. Uh, William Carey is, is known as the forefather of, of modern missions, and uh, he lived right around the year 1800. He, he was a missionary taking the gospel to India, and he's famous for making this comment. He said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, but attempt great things for God. Now, a person might say, well, that sounds really great, but where's the scripture for that? And I would, I would honestly respond with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where we read this. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Pause there for just a second, okay? He says, according to the power at work within us. You say, well, what power is that? It is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that is at work within the believer today. In fact, you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19, and we see that Paul's talking about the very same power there. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead that is now at work in believers. So, so now to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than everything that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, what kind of impression has God made on you? Right, that's the question we're talking about here. How, what kind of impression has God made on you? And is it the kind of impression that tells the world, a lost world, a world that doesn't know Jesus and they don't know that God loves them, is it the kind of impression that tells them that you're willing to do whatever's necessary for them to hear about God's love? You know, one thing that we see all throughout the Bible and, and throughout the, all, all throughout the pages of history is that when God has truly made an impression on a person, 
that person will stop at nothing to attempt great things for God. God has become the primary object of their affection. He has become their joy. He has become the one that they seek most to please in this life. I truly believe that God had made such an impression upon Nehemiah that Nehemiah was, was willing to attempt great things for God. But how does that impression and, and how does that attempting to do great things for God play out in what you might see as your ordinary or non-exciting or sometimes boring, semi, seemingly mediocre life today? How does it play out in life today? How does it become personal to me? How does it become personal to you? How do you embrace the greatness that God has called every single believer to? And here's how. You find where God is working and you jump in and you immerse yourself in what he's doing. That's exactly what we see Nehemiah do. He looked for the ways that God is working and he jumps in and he immerses himself in what God is doing. Okay, so practically for us today, here's what this looks like. God is calling for the heart of every lost member, family member and coworker and neighbor that you may have. He is calling for the heart and for the life of each one of those people. And the cool thing is that he chooses to use you and he chooses to use me to show them how to find life in Jesus. So, um, so we look for, um, so we find where God is working and we jump in and join him in that. So we look for the places that God is calling others to himself and we're available for him to use us. We look around and see, where's God working in this person's life or in this person's life? And, and you join him in what he's doing. That's one way that the impression that God has made on you is, is lived out. Now, here's another way. In our church right now, I truly believe that God is at work. He's molding and he's shaping a vision for reaching people and for moving into the future in a big way. I personally... Um, believe with everything inside of me that God is moving us into a period of attempting great things for him. So one of the ways that you as an individual and maybe you as a family can attempt great things for God is by attaching yourself to a church that is attempting great things for God. Colossians 1.18 tells us that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus stopped at nothing to do great things for God in saving people. He stopped at nothing in doing those great things. So what makes us think that he would lead us to do anything less than attempt great things for God right now so others can be saved? Living based on the oppression God has made on you includes, I believe, attaching yourself to a church that is attempting great things for God. You know, I thought about giving you some more examples of what this looks like um, to join God where he's working. But I've just given you two of them, okay? Looking around you to see where God is working in individual lives and joining him in that work. But then attaching yourself to a local church where uh, they are attempting great things for God. Right, and I thought about giving you more examples than that, but I realized that's two things for us to really pour ourselves into. So why give more examples in this moment? Why not focus on those two things? Folks, when God makes an impression, he makes a big impression. So I would encourage you to let that impression sink in and play out in a big way. Going back to Nehemiah and seeing how they finished this massive job of rebuilding the walls, looking at how God has worked in this, 
we see secondly that God destroys the enemy's self-confidence. God destroys the enemy's self-confidence. All of us are, are confident in something. All of us are. Um, some people are confident in themselves and their ability to produce results or maybe to take care of themselves. Uh, some people are confident in their money, thinking that their money is going to take care of them and take care of any and every need that they ever have. Some people are confident in their family and in the comfort and the security that family brings. Now, those are not bad things in which to be confident. However, if in any way we are confident in those things only, or we are confident simply for selfish gain, trying to see what we can get out of them, then those confidences become bad things. All throughout the story of the rebuilding of the walls, Nehemiah has these enemies who have tried to do harm to the work that's being done, right? And trying to stop the work, they've tried distraction, they've tried lying, they've tried stirring up division among the workers. However, we now get to the part of the story where the wall is completed, and here's what happens to those enemies' self-confidence. Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid. Wait a minute, weren't these guys the ones who were just trying to stir up so much trouble and they weren't appearing afraid before, right? But now they're afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of of our God. I love those words. They were afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem. That means, as, as we tend to say, uh, that they were taken down a few notches, right? They were put in their place. And who were they put in their place by? It wasn't Nehemiah. It wasn't the people in, in Jerusalem. They were used to put these people in their place. No, God put them in their place. Folks, here's something for us to hold on to. When God's enemies see God's people do something great in God's power, it is demoralizing to them. When God's enemies see God's people do something great in God's power, it is demoralizing to them. Now, folks, we've got a very real enemy that is at work against us. Satan and all of his powers of darkness want to do everything that they can to stop what God is doing. Do you know what they can't stand, though? They can't stand against God's power. You know, sometimes I think Satan is victorious in this world because God's people are refusing to, do a, to attempt great things for God. I think believers live seemingly defeated lives because they don't understand the way this whole thing works. Over and over again, all throughout Scripture, God works in the very same way. It's almost like a cycle, okay? God finds a person who is surrendered to him, first of all, God leads that person to attempt something great for him. God provides the power for that great thing to be accomplished, and Satan is defeated. And that cycle continues. God finds a person who is surrendered to him. God leads that person to attempt something great for him. God provides the power for that great thing to be accomplished, and Satan is defeated. And the cycle keeps going on and on and on. Folks, I truly believe that we so clearly see the sin and the corruption in this world because God's people refuse to be a part of attempting something great for God. As God's, peop as God's people's uh, confidence 
in God diminishes, as, as our confidence in God diminishes, Satan's confidence in himself grows, and the result is widespread corruption and wickedness in this world. But when are God's people going to step up and say, enough? When is our confidence in our great God and in what he has the power to do going to show that the light of the world is stronger than Satan is? When are we, like Nehemiah, going to stand in the gap and do the very hard work of attempting great things for God rather than simply coasting through life, finding more joy in our comfort than joy in our Savior? When are we going to finally decide that we are only here to bring honor and glory to God rather than honor and glory to ourselves? When are we going to become sick of the mediocrity and relish in the great things that God has lined up for us? Because that's what he's done. He's lined them up for us saying, I'm ready for you. You just need to be ready to go. Folks, when are we going to look at the brokenness of the Jerusalem wall around us and join God in restoring glory to what is precious to him? Nehemiah and the Jews, and the Jews there in Jerusalem saw what God is, is calling them to do, and he followed them. They followed him and what he was calling him to do. Now, in closing this morning, I want to give you two keys to finishing your Jerusalem wall. Two keys to finishing your Jerusalem wall. Okay, so you want to attempt something great for God. You want to attempt something big for God. Now what? Number one, be usable by God and watch for the great things he's calling you to do. Be usable by God and watch for the great things he's calling you to. Folks, God is looking for Christians who are usable. Here's what it means to be, to be usable. Here's what it means to be usable by God. I think about Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where we read this. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Folks, the pattern that God uses is simple. He looks for the person with humility and who genuinely wants to follow him. And that's the person he uses to do great things for him. And as we become living sacrifices, in other words, as we, as we lay it all down, say, God, I'm alive, I have a physical body, I'm still, my heart's still beating, but I'm yours. I'm dead to myself, I am yours. And as we do that, we're going to be able to discern the will of God and see what it is that he's got for us. So the first key to finishing your Nehemiah wall is to be usable by God and watch for the great things he's calling you to do. The next thing, to, next key here to finishing your Nehemiah wall is to don't quit. Don't ever, ever quit. I love the story of Nehemiah partly because we see him from the very beginning following God with a passion that would not allow him to quit. Too many times God lays things at our feet, and he says, I want you to do this. And we start on the journey of them, but now we've, we've cast them off. We decide we can't handle it anymore. 
and we quit. Now, let's be honest here for just a moment. God rarely calls us to do anything that's easy. It's tough following Him, and it's tough attempting great things for Him. Oh, but think about the joy that you have whenever that job, whatever that calling, whatever it is that God's led you to do, think about the joy that you will have when that's completed. A couple of weeks ago, I was helping my son with his, his last schoolwork assignment for the school year. And when we finished what we were working on, um, he is, he's going to be done for the summer. Okay, when we, when we finished it, he was going to be completely done. The last assignment that we were working on wasn't necessarily hard, but it was time-consuming. It was taking a while for us to get this thing done. And I'll never forget that, that when he put that period on the last sentence that he had to write and he put his pencil down, he realized that he was completely done with that year's worth of schoolwork and tears of joy and tears of relief started flowing down his face. I'm, I'm not kidding. He was so excited to be done. You could see him just relax. He knew that he had finished his job. Christian, listen, let's take that same idea and blow it up in proportion here, an area of, of importance. We're not just talking about schoolwork that needs to be done here. We are talking about a calling that God has given us and different assignments in life that God has given us that are hard, that we have to work through, that are time-consuming. There's coming a day, though, which we arrive in heaven and everything that we've ever done for the kingdom of God is going to be weighed. How many of us are going to stand before God knowing that there were things that he asked of us that we never did? But on the other side of that, how awesome is it going to be for us to stand before God knowing that we gave everything that we could attempting great things for him? How great will it be to know that we could have quit so many times, but we didn't? You know, if there's anything that this story in, in Nehemiah tells us about the rebuilding of the walls, it shows us the faithfulness of God. That when he calls us to something, that he's going to be faithful to carry us through in whatever that is. So when we have those Jerusalem wall moments and we see what needs to be done, we see the brokenness around us, and we see what God's led us to do to repair those walls, we can look at it and go, God, I know you're going to be faithful. I know that you're going to carry me through this. Folks, we have all got Jerusalem walls. We have all got great things to attempt for God. Don't quit. Don't ever, ever quit. It's like we sang a little while ago. When the times get a little bit difficult, you don't know where to turn, then turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. Father, we want to attempt great things for you. Not for our own glory, not to build our own kingdom, but Father, you are worth it. You're worth the heartache, you're worth the trials, you're worth the difficulties. So, Father, would we live in such a way that shows you we are ready to be a living sacrifice. We're wholly acceptable to you. That, Father, by doing so, that, that we can discern your will and know which way to go. 
And then, Father, help us to never, ever, ever quit. That when you've called us to something, Father, help us to stick in there and stick it out until you lead us on in a different direction. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for our time together. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.